Welcome to Where Wine Takes You, a wine podcast that gives it to you real. And man, oh man, are we going to today. First, I want to say I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving and are feeling good as we get into the holiday season. Before we get right into today's conversation, and it is a good one, take some time, if you can, to share the podcast with someone. Tell a friend, and if you have not yet already, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It does so much in our quest for worldwide wine podcast domination and just spreading the gospel of Paso Wine Country, which is what we are here to do. After our conversation, we have a fun Travel Paso Spotlight that will really help your gift-giving needs this season. I promise you'll thank me later. Now, I want to get right into our conversation. Kenneth Volk, the name is synonymous with Central Coast Wine, with Paso Wine. He is a pioneer, a visionary, a legend, an incubator of great winemakers that have crossed his paths or worked for him. A tremendously smart and well-respected man in this space. There was only one Ken Volk, and we got him today. He is real. Like so many I love on here, he tells you like it is. Pulls no punches. And we're going to get down into some stuff today for sure. Now, in 1981, Ken and the Volk family established Wild Horse Vineyard and constructed Wild Horse Winery. And over the next 22 years, production grew from just 600 cases to over 150,000. In 2003, he sold Wild Horse to Peak Wines International, a division of Jim Beam. And in December of 2004, Ken purchased the original Byron Winery facility from the Robert Mondavi Corporation and renamed the property Kenneth Volk Vineyards. In 2006, the first wines were released, and you can enjoy them to this day. Ken Volk has served the community for decades and decades. In 1982, he was the founding president of the Paso Robles Grape Growers Association. Now, after a stroke in 2014, he slowed down a bit, but applied that same tenacity that drove his passion for growing grapes, making wine, and plant sciences to his health and made some fantastic strides towards recovery. I feel very lucky for this chance to sit down with him. He talks about it all today. Doesn't hold back. The acquisition of Wild Horse. There's a story in here about the San Simeon earthquake that rocked Paso hard in December of 03, and it left me jaw-dropped and the hair on my arm standing up. Ken gets about as real as one can get in this conversation. Now, I show up to Ken Volk's home in San Luis Obispo. I first meet the dogs, two adorable French bulldogs. He is working on an epic backyard. I mean, he's definitely the envy of every green thumb, wannabe green thumb in the neighborhood. I mean, his garden game is strong. I learned daikon radishes actually have big, long roots that in effect till for you and make it great to grow anything else after. We spent like 20 minutes or more in the garden, touring the backyard and the new greenhouse he is building. It was a blast. Learned a lot from him. He's growing all kinds of peppers in there too. We came into the kitchen. He's got like a dozen wines set up and mainly ones you don't see, hear of, or for that matter, pronounce that often like Blau Frankish and Melon de Bourguignon, Verdello, Cabernet Pfeffer. I mean, really? So many of these and more. We pick a few and then head to the living room and start rolling tape. First item of conversation, this massive art piece right in front of me. Enjoy like I did. Ken Volk. Give me that sound. We'll get by. We pass on down till the job is Camped out in the trees. It will simplify good company. This is your home. I can't thank you enough for having me like in your home. That is a very provocative art piece, too. I love that. Yeah, that's... It's uh, got me thinking. And, um, what is it? This St. Agatha. Yeah, is that what it is? Yeah. No, see, St. Agatha is on the right. Yeah. And then this is Anonymous. And the, the piece is known as St. Agatha and Anonymous. And St. Agatha had a suitor who she rebuffed, and he cut off her breasts... And then, which is pretty macabre. Yeah. And, and then she went on to become a saint. And then you have um, Anonymous with her. Kind of like a mosaic her, over her, her face, her breasts. And correct. Her, and then she's got uh, basically fake boobs in her hand. Yeah, she's holding implants. Implants, yeah. And it almost looks like over her stomach, she could be in, in between each set of fingers that she's holding a mask. Maybe I just think that because it's like 2021. And oh, I could see how you'd say that. Everyone, yeah. wear ma everyone wears masks now? I think... <clears throat> Isn't that interesting? I, 
it, it is. I, 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 I see exactly what you're talking about. I feel like this painting has like more, you know, um, subjectivity post COVID. Oh, I, it, to me, it's pretty creepy. And, 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 uh, it's actually, if, uh, the artist who I wish I could name her name and her, she was actually a high school, a friend of my wife's falling short on scene. Yeah. I, maybe the signature on the bottom left, but I, it's very hard to read if it is. I don't even know if it is. But it's beautiful. Oh, it's a it's a striking piece. It's a yeah, very beautiful piece. Yeah, and it's a it's a large piece. It's like what, like six feet by three feet. Uh, maybe I th- think you're right about. Uh, oh, I think it's probably four feet by yeah six and six and change. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the house is beautiful, yeah. and oh, well, thank I know, you. I know you're only in. You just moved here what a year or so ago. Yeah, we moved in a year or so ago, and we had most everything done on the interior, but we had a lot of stuff to, you know, just like. You know, nothing like a pandemic and trying to deconstruction and everything else. It was. It was well, I love the, the the outdoor garden, and we're going to do a little tour of that later. I mean, okay. that was really cool to what you walk me around there and to talk about that. That was so cool. And you really are. I mean, you are a horticulturist at heart. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, I have the two degrees that are no longer offered at Cal Poly, agronomy and pomology. And I've always been interested in gardening and, and then that's kind of what got me into the wine business. I mean, and I had actually been really interested in citrus and avocados for years. And then I went down and I was working for a company, AgriVest down in San Diego, doing planting citrus and avocados on you know, this is in the late 70s. It was a really interesting experience. And then came back up to the San Luis Obispo area. You know, when I came up to Cal Poly, I was actually more, more interested in greenhouse production. And I was doing a lot of the different enterprise projects on basically deciduous trees as well as the citrus and avocados. And then I had the berry project, which is right down the hill from the um from the grape project on radio what used to be on radio radio tower hill and the late sam wallace who was doing the grape project at the time he had some what he was calling gamay beaujolais at the time grapes left over and so we decided to make some wine and that was my first experience in um in winemaking and were you just hooked then uh, I was very interested in it. I mean, I'd been, I'd brewed before and I'd, uh, you know, it was something that I found really interesting because compared to so much of agriculture, you somewhat got out of the perishability issue and you could create, and you got out of the commodity business, you could create your own branded product. I mean, I wasn't thinking that at the time, but that's, that was a lot of the attraction to me. It was like, God, you know, this is, because so many, you know, when I was going to Poly, there's so many cases where people from ag families where they had a great year, but the market was saturated and they didn't get a good price. And you're kind of a lot more, um, it seemed like you had a little bit more charge of your destiny. That's and, a great way to put it. I totally know, get what you mean. And it, it, you know, it made more sense. And then, you know, I loved wine. <laughs> so it was, you know. And is this how Wild Horse is born? Kind of, yeah. Wild Horse um, was, um, we started that back in 1982, and Wild Horse was originally, and God, this could get a long, complicated story. Um, Wild Horse, uh, was, I originally bonded as Santa Lucia Winery for the Santa Lucia Mountains that were out in front of, you know, that you could see from the winery. <laughs> and I, um, I'm kind of getting out of context here. I'll come back to that part, but in 1982, um, we formed a family partnership, which which was Riverview Vineyards, and we planted our first uh, 26 acres of vines there in Templeton. And of course, it was chocolate and vanilla. Planted Chardonnay and Cabernet, and then in 1983, I I bonded the winery in essentially what was my original ag building. And then over the course of time, you know, kept on growing it. I produced 600 cases in 83, which is my first vintage. But in the years leading up to that time, I've been making a tremendous amount of home wine, um, well over my 200-gallon uh, legal limit right. at, at, at up in Cayucas in, in the house that I was living in the garage. My roommates were getting mad at me because I kept on 
making it harder and harder to get cars or boats or anything else in the garage because Ken kept on putting in more barrels. Right. You know, but, uh, you know, it's kind of, you know, it was, you know, I, I made wine, you know, um, as an amateur for, gosh, five, six years um, before starting Wild Horse. And then I had basically helped a number of wineries, El Paso de Robles, and where I actually got a paycheck was actually at the Valley in the first year of the opening of Ed Valley here in San Luis Obispo. Is that right? That was your first paycheck in the wine business? Correct. Wow. Yeah. And at that time, I mean, of course, Edna Valley here in San Luis Obispo, but at that time in Paso, it was like Eberly was just coming on board. I mean, it was a very right. new pioneering time for wine everywhere. Well, you know, Paso, you know, it, there was always some great things going on there. If you look historically at the, the old Zinfandel plantings in Petaruski and you know, obviously, the foundation, original plantings by the Ducey family, and then you had York Mountain and the York Brothers and... HMR. You know, HMR. Well, HMR was really, in my opinion, was kind of like what really kind of got things going. Was and it? Stan Hoffman. Yeah. Got, got, I mean, Estrella was making wonderful wines, but I think they, you know, Tom Myers, you know, hats off. I think he's one of the greatest winemakers ever made wine here in the Central Coast, and... Uh, you know, he and Gabriel, Gary were doing fabulous things there. Gary went on, obviously, to do um, his gig with the Everly Winery. and But there really wasn't a whole lot. I mean, Paso Robles was still, people were trying to figure it, you know, really kind of, you know, what are we? Are we, you know, a Bordeaux region? Are we a Burgundy region? Even the Hoffmans couldn't figure it out. I mean, they had critical acclaim for their Pinot Noir and... You know, but, it, you know, nothing like Pinot Noir on, on Chalk Rock. and uh, Well, they were trying to kind of figure, like you said, they're trying to figure it out themselves. They were right. getting the likes of, like, Andre Chelichev to Correct. come and kind of landscape this out and say, hey, what, what, what do we do here, right? Correct. And you had, you know, Andre had already been in the Central Coast working for the Firestone family and helping that project get off the ground. And, you know, he was you know, after his years at BB was basically a hired consultant in a number of parts of the state. So then you start Wild Horse mm -hmm. and Wild Horse becomes this thing where it's like, it's amazing. All the winemakers that I've talked to over the last 10 years with Cork Dorks and my stuff on the crush to even folks I've talked to within the last year or so on this podcast, I mean, Wild Horse was like this running ground of all so many names well, across a, that path. There are a number of incubators. You know, but basically, we were certainly in Paso proper. We we're certainly one of them. I mean, Estrella River. My my gosh, you know Neil Utzon, uh, John Munch, uh, Toby. You know Toby. I mean you. You know, and then Everly, obviously. You're sure. Uh, I mean, they, you know, and every and Gary was way ahead of me. In fact, I hired Gary as a consultant in my. You know, is that right? I, yeah, when I was first looking at properties, because I was trying, I was looking at properties from literally from Prunedale to. Uh, Santa Rita and I was you know trying to find something that one you know was in a proven region to that was you know had water had it was in a great location and I ended up in Templeton uh, because of the you know one because we had excellent water at least at that time and it's still probably one of the best parts of the county. There's actually three different water sources there. Passerolles Formation, Salinas Formation, and then uh, a yet-to-be-named aquifer that comes in part of the Tascadero, backside of the Salinas and Tascadero region. And um, the property had previously been irrigated alfalfa and you know, obviously we, we did a lot of things. We had a, we had a very good producer well there. And I, I wanted to be in a situation where I had the ability to, you know, as we get into this, where, you know, water is the most precious thing that we have here. I mean, we're going to be fighting wars over water and not oil in the future, but we, um, you know, I had, you know, a 600 gallon per minute well there, which was great. I ended, you know, I set things up for overhead sprinkler protection and, I needed it on some of the early varieties because we, you know, it was not uncommon to freeze in 
you know, we're pretty close to the river, a very cold spot. In fact, Pat Mastin, uh, when I was telling him what I was doing, he goes, oh, you can't grow grapes there. And, and I go, oh, great. Thanks, Pat. That's, you know, <laughs> thanks, thanks for the encouragement. Right. Yeah. But, uh, was there a lot of that? Was there a lot of like, oh, you, you know, a lot of uh, hurdles to get through? Were, was this like a really kind of just put your head down and just keep going forward trying time in the beginning? Well, or it, it wasn't so much that is, I mean, we, we, I mean, in regards to pushback from the various government agencies and stuff, they, you know, it was still the honeymoon period where, you know, the, you could, you know, with, you know, you, you know, we did everything by the book as far as permits and everything else, but there really wasn't much resistance as there is today. Well, Reagan uh, wanted wine for his ranch. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, uh, yeah, well, it's, it's funny. You, you should mention, uh, Ronald because he, he was a big supporter of the California wine industry, frankly. Yeah. yeah frankly, there's few other presidents I can think of. I remember, like, the Gary's 1980 cab was at the Western White House, and I think they brought it to China. I'm sure your wine has seen oh, I've been, I've been some I've pretty been, beautiful I've, tables. I've probably done about six White House dinners you know, really? through the years. Yeah. Wow. And, did, uh, you, did you go to them? Well, do, do you realize that when Ronald Reagan ran for, made his run for the presidency, that he did his kickoff campaign? At the McGilvery Ranch in Paso Robles. Which is now Halter Ranch. Which is now Halter Ranch. Yeah, he landed right there on that strip. Well, that strip there was also where probably half the tie sticks uh, of California were flown into. That as well as the uh, the jet strip um, where 46 T-bones in Highway Highway 1. The Brotherhoods of Eternal Love had a huge operation there. So they would and bring in sticks, they'd bring in vines. No, they bring in bales of tie sticks. What are tie sticks? What do you mean? Uh, oh, tie sticks are the, are the ganja from Thai. Oh, the, oh my gosh, know, really? Go, yeah. And oh, then, I didn't know yeah, that. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then, then you had that, and then, well, check out when there was a four-ton heist by the, um, made by the San Luis Obispo County sheriffs, but between the time of the heist uh, and getting the, the confiscation of it to getting it into the jailhouse, a few tons disappeared in a number of different sheriffs immediately resigned no from the force. No way. Yes. Wow, what year was this-ish? I think this was either ballpark. In late, late 80s or, okay. early, or early 80s. Oh my gosh. No, look that one up. That's, I definitely will. Yeah, and then... Uh, now there's a lot of crazy things happening in Paso over the years. Yeah. I mean, a lot, you know, Ron L. Hubbard and his... his Creston, he's got a ranch at Creston. We're talking right. about the Scientology guy. Oh, exactly. I hear that they still lay out his clothes for him every day. I went up there with another radio friend of mine, Jeremy, who I do the Cork Talk show with. Uh -huh. We drove over there one day during when all this kind of hubbub was going around with the Scientologist stuff, like, I don't know, almost maybe like nine, ten years ago. And we, you know, called it... It's a beautiful, immaculate ranch with a horse track. I, ne and, I never got into it. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm not into Scientology. I don't yeah, want you no, to think. No, no, I'm no, just no, like, no, no, no. I, yeah. I didn't mean it that way. I never got on the property. and I. Oh, I just I looked at it. I just went, all, yeah. All I know is that there's a lot of contractors that were paid cash. Yeah. And there's no permits on anything. Yeah. That was in. Isn't that interesting? It, 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 it's stunning. Central Coast has a lot of this stuff. Oh. It's pretty crazy. It's almost like Hearst kind of brought in all these, you know, because Hearst was crazy, you know, but oh, I mean, but it's interesting. Talk about one of the most beautiful places oh. on the coast. I mean, if you, you know, obviously Easily. he was, he, he could afford to put his castle anywhere he wanted, but I think it says a lot for the beauty of the, of the coastline there, yeah. you know, and, and it, actually I've, I've worked with a number of coastal vineyards over that direction. This, the, the uh, Steiner Creek vineyard, mm -hmm. uh, um, the Derbyshire used, used to farm over, over behind Cayucas, which was um, the Cottontail Creek vineyard that was right behind Whale Rock Reservoir, and that was probably the coldest vineyard you could ever imagine. It's funny, Justin yeah. Smith of Saxon recently planted in that neighborhood of like Cayucas off Old Creek Road. Right. And you're seeing a lot of, look at Stolo uh, right. making some great wines from the North Coast. Well, and as we have global warming, you know, it's going to be, you know, we're, you know, I, I can tell you there's a lot of places in the state we won't be able to grow wine grapes. I can see it. Not to dig deep, deep into climate change, uh -huh. right? But like, where does it sit as far as our ability to kind of, one, I mean, 
we probably are in the best position now to adapt to anything like this than humans were, say, when, you know, all the plates were together. Or, I mean, shoot, look at Santa Margarita. Uh, that was an ancient seabed, right? I mean, so there was an ice right. age. So when all the, the earth has been changing and climate has oh, been changing. Oh, climate change happened all, all, all through time. Right. It was Mark Twain that said, weather is, is what you expect and climate's what you get. Yeah. And, you know, I, my carbon footprints as big as texas i mean i'm 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 talking you know i don't want to sound too two-faced here in the sense that you know i used to drive forty thousand miles a, a year i used to you know fly a lot of places i did uh, many many things that i didn't conserve you know but it was sort of out of sight out of mind it's just unfortunately you know the unexpected consequences of what should you, you know, not have done that i mean you had to do it well no i'm, I'm not mad at you for that, it that 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 were it's not that I'm mad that I did it, but it's just the unintended consequences. We don't realize it. I'll give you a little rinse here of some Milan de Bourguignon. Okay. Well, looking in your kitchen, when you had some of these wines in yeah. here, I, ha- a here. I have have not even, I can't, much less can't even pronounce a lot of them, <laughs> but you play with so many different kinds of varietals. What was it about different varietals that were just so intriguing to you? Well, I think that for me, it was trying to do something different every year than I've never done before. It just to say I've done it. And it, it this sounds kind of wacky, but my my good friend and one of my original winemakers, John Priest, who's now the winemaker up at Etude, he and I used to call it cross-training. It's like, you know, we make better Chardonnay and Pinot Noir by playing around with Malvasia and, and Semillon and, you know, things like that. What you was know? it about that? Why? That's interesting. I like that. But how come? Well, you know, there, there's so many interesting grape varieties. And it's really tough in this world that we have of trying to, you know, it's just, I like to see what the potential is. Sometimes people think, okay, well, you know, if you, you know, why is why is supposedly Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Riesling, Sauvignon Blanc considered the noblest of varieties? You know, if you go old school, well, you know, there would be no modern Bordeaux or Napa Valley if there wasn't some people coming over, you know, from the monasteries bringing um, an unpronounced version of Cabernet Franc over the Pyrenees into the Loire Valley, which then had a baby with Sauvignon Blanc to create Cabernet Sauvignon. You know, it's just these, these random things. I mean, and, you know, most of our, you know, virtually all of our grapevines are clonal material. And, and it's, um, and a lot of that happened by, you know, random cross-pollination. You know, typically most vinifera doesn't cross-pollinate. It's, you know, they're, they're, they pollinate their own fruit or other cluster, other flowers on the same cluster, but rarely does it cross-pollinate. Um, you know, I mean, it it can happen, but not too many people are growing those seeds out to see what's taking place there. To me, there's there's varieties which maybe people didn't think it was very good because they're tasting the wines from that region and saying, well, you know, th- this is not a good variety, but if you take it and grow it with care and from a standpoint of a, a sanitary winery <laughs> that's a big part of it i mean i i used to hate um, a lot of the you know the industry I mean, italy i mean back in the day that the lower price chiantis and things like that man they're just riddled with bread you can say the same thing for tanomyces and which is basically a wine spoilage yeast and the you have you know the same thing was true in the rhone valley well everyone's kind of cleaned up their act more you know it's trying to look that okay Ionyatico, if you take that grape and you make it in a clean cellar and, you know, give it the inputs that it needs and, 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 and coddle it, you can make one of the greatest wines in the world. Yeah. You know, and... Ionyatico, the Italian varietal. Correct. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Which, in you know, another thing going, tying it back to Paso Robles, you know, you, you know, you had up in San Miguel, Dave Caperone was probably the first known planting of that variety in California. It's interesting. Paso is so able to grow so many different kinds of varieties to such world-class levels. Well, it's, 
I think, you know, in general, it's a good deciduous plant growing region. And we also have some very good soils that are very, I don't believe in pure chalk rock, but calcareous soils in general, I really do feel help with aromatics and texture and wines. I mean, you can grow a lot of things in Paso Robles that, you know, that, that can really shine. I mean, I think that Paso Robles has sort of had, I'll call it an identity crisis by any means, but basically, is it a Bordeaux region? Is it a Rhone region? Is it an Italian region? Is it a, you know, it's, it's it, uh, you know, when I use those terms, it's basically, you know, grapes that are indigenous to those countries growing well here. Right. Should we be growing Cab and Cab Franc and Merlot right. and Malbec? Right. Or should we be growing Grenache, Syrah, Mavet? Right. Or should we do, you know, let's stick with Sangio. And, uh, <laughs> right. but, but I mean, I guess Paso, I mean, it's kind of the fact that that's even conversation. Does that almost kind of say Paso, can, it can do it all. There's room for the folks like... Well, I think you can hit into every field. And then yeah. what, what I think is grossly underestimated is the, the ability to grow good aromatic white grapes in the more cooler areas. Yeah, I, great point. I, I think that, you know, when Passworld was being formed uh, um, as an appellation, we, you know, basically uh, the late Tom Martin was really p- pushing the envelope and as, you know, as well as Gary and, and other vintners in the area. But our idea at that time was we wanted to do something where we were more inclusive than exclusive in regards to we wanted to kind of the goal was sort of to take from the Cuesta Ridge and the rest of the North County, and we'll call this Pass Robles. And the original Appalachian, you know, was a very large AVA. Back in the day when I was making wines, I used to buy grapes from Justin and Carmen McKnight and those guys, and they actually, they didn't even know this. Paso Vintners didn't even know it. It was too far west of what was considered the AVA at that time. And so wow. we did, and we basically extended the AVA Scooted to, the it out past, yeah. to, to basically bring those, th- those vineyards in. And the crazy thing about that, I think that's the first time I've ever seen an Appalachian in large where it actually improved the overall quality of the Appalachian. Oh, yeah. You know, and, it, you know, it's, it's pretty crazy. And I, I'm not a big fan of all of the sub appellations. I mean, is that really going to tell the consumer something more? I mean, I think the problem that we used to get into was what is You're the, with Gary what, on this what, one because Gary agrees with you. But what is the typicity of Paso Robles? And it could be very confusing. Right. You know, you can have, you know, let's just stay with Cabernet. You know, you can get a lot of different styles of wine. Now, is that the place where the fruit's grown? Is that the, the combination of the winemaker's spin on how they production techniques and everything else? And you know, it's kind of funny because I coined the term Templeton Gap. And I was trying to explain that. And this goes back to Gerald Asher, who is, you know, was one of the great food and wine writers. Back I hope you get day. royalty checks for that and, one. And, 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 I get nothing. But <laughs> I did get the Appalachian. Yeah. And the funny thing about that is I was pushing it when they were trying to call about, talk about the different AVAs. And we had our initial ideas where, where boundaries should be and where it should go. Well, it was really funny how Templin, Templin Gap got a lot smaller. Willow Creek got a lot bigger because everyone's trying to juice. I mean, basically, we're off the co- coattails of Justin Smith and, and people along. Um, Willow Creek's the Cool Willow Kids Creek. Club. Yeah, exactly. For, the, for an AVA, it's the Cool Kids Club, right, no doubt. Exactly. As an industry, we really blew it in, in the sense that we should have made it much more entry and that you know if people can't pronounce the names or you know are being intimidated by a sommelier and i've got a lot of great sommeliers that provide great service out there i'm not trying to be obnoxious to you guys out there still carry my wines (laughs) (laughs) but sometimes you get people who are just like you know really not helping make people comfortable and that's why i'm always so envious of you know the microbrew industry beer is very you know you know it's a very pretty level playing field you know i mean of course you got plenty of the elder and a few things like that but it's a pretty level playing field and people are comfortable with it yes and we can get as geeky as, as we ever want to get with beers but beer is unintimidating yeah and i think that it's you make people comfortable i mean a lot of people are pretty down on the concept of two buck chuck 
and that whole scenario. But, you know, Fred Francia, I have to give him, uh, you know, a lot of prompts for getting people to try wine that really never tried it before. Yeah. You know, he's a very opinionated fellow, but the Francia family is a, you know, group of characters that that i have tremendous respect for. well what is that hook about wine that still encapsulates and envelops some of these traits you're talking about the hoity-toityness you know beer being more of an, a, well, a level playing field and are you driving a porsche and does your you got your new so blonde, blonder wife and you know yeah. it's just it it i don't know i mean god i it, it's the damnedest thing. It's just like, you know, who's got the biggest cock? You know, who's yeah. got that? You know, it's like, to me, I'd, ra- you know, I'd much rather go. I mean, I love Michelin star restaurants, but I also like little trattorias and yeah, where of course. you can go, you know, yeah. and basically, you know, meet with people and, and have a communication as opposed to, I don't dig the whole class differential in in you know i'm richer than you and all this bullshit again that's probably my old hippie roots and and uh you know yes i like nice things don't get me wrong but it's sort of well look at my you know you know like <laughs> one of the worst experiences i ever had at the winery is that we did a this is going back to wild horse we did a uh event for this um uh stingray club and Talking the, the cars, Corvettes, Stingrays. Cars, Corvettes, Corvettes, and I mean, basically, people get really flipped into their cars, but then it's like, okay, well, great, you got one, I'm wonderful, you know, but you no, know, there's other things in life, you know, what's the human relationship? I mean, we've got, you know, this last couple of years has been pretty rocky, mm-hmm. to say the least, and divisive, and, and, and trying to find some sort of common ground is always welcomed, it's always trying to, you know, it might not be about the $180,000 Stingray, but look, let's come to a level that maybe we can all uh, be approachable, all be one, and well, I can see that's, you know, that's an admirable thing to want to desire and, and look towards, you know? Well, we don't have to be as one, but let's just not be, I'm better than you, boy. Sure. So you coined Templeton Gap, the term. What was like, do you remember the first time that like rolled off your lips? Well, I would always, you know, what I looked at is that you got a sterile bay. And a sterile bay acts like a big funnel. If and for will. someone who doesn't know, a sterile bay is that bay right around Morro Rock. Well, it's the much bigger bay uh-huh. from, from Point Cayucas to Point Bichon. And it is, uh, it, it is, it comes in and it moderates a lot of the, you know, when we have our onshore winds and particularly... In the summertime, when we're seeing a lot of the winds coming off of the Pacific High, as it comes down the coastline, it hits there and rolls in. And, you know, actually, Morro Bay proper acts as a funnel for here in Edna Valley. But you have all of the various river channels that basically cross the Santa Lucias and let air through. You have, you know, a real prominent one to me is in used to be for wild horse and for other locations in that area was the winds coming up from up Atascadero Creek from Morro Bay and you know via Creek all the different different um, riparian dry riverbeds but basically their drainages that would bring you know act as a the lowest passage to allow air to come into us right and um and that was, you know, a huge factor. And then Edna Valley kind of gets a little bit of a, a stereo effect because, you know, it also has Avila to the south. And, you know, though granted most of that wind continues south. And for Santa Barbara in that area, you have, you know, essentially what would be San Luis Bay. And that comes through and particularly goes into the Santa Maria Valley through the Santa Maria River. And that's what, you know, makes the cool climate for that area. You know, it's um, that hits that bench at you know Bienacito, and oh yeah, it makes beautiful lines. Absolutely, and in fact, this um, Melon de Bourgogne. How do you say this? <laughs> Melon de Bourgogne. Melon de Bourgogne. Like beef Bourgogne. Oh, there you go. Okay, yeah. yeah. And uh, this, okay, so this is the grape that Andre Chelchev called Pinot Blanc, and he brought it to brought it into California, and UC Davis at that time then. Oh, Andre Telchev says it's Pinot Blanc. It's Pinot Blanc. Must be right, because yeah, he said so. Goes, sure. goes into it. So if you went back in the day, I used to make Pinot Blanc at Wild Horse, and it was actually Milan de Bourguignon. And then back in 1989, get my year straight here. No, it's not. Yeah, 89 was when we were having the big battle. They wanted to get rid of the name Pinot Blanc because it wasn't Pinot Blanc. 
And so I was part of 40 wineries protesting the ATF to give us a use-up period. I was championing to have have it call it California Pinot Blanc. Then they were using the name Milan. And this is just absolutely shows you how disconnected our government is. Okay, Milan de Bourguignon means, you know, Milan of Burgundy. It's a reference directly to Burgundy. We're supposed to get rid of all of our use of foreign names and wine labels. But they approved this. Isn't that wild? Yeah. And, Gosh. And, and so basically, this is one of the Gauss Blanc Pinot Noir crosses, you know, just like Blaufrankisch, just like Pinot Grigio. I mean, there's it, it's probably 16 wine grapes that were basically Mama and Papa were Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And then all of the, you know, the genetics in the fertilization, it created, you know, a new genetically different plant. And then those were asexually propagated for, for decades. But yet, and this is the beauty of simple sequence DNA, because we can really get down to brass tacks as to who, you know, who was Papa and who was Mama. In a lot of cases, we don't know who is Mama or who is Papa. We know what the what, we know what one of the parents are, but you know, so many different grape varieties disappeared from this earth when phylloxera hit Europe hard, and you know, we're, we're and there's still unidentified grapevines. Believe me, out there. But it, one of the things that always drove me crazy is like, okay, well, how did we not get this right? You know, Hiracona <laughs> Pinot Blanc. Right. You know, didn't Andre know? And, yeah, 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 yeah. But they look really, really similar. And at that point, how were we identifying grapes? By leaves? We were doing this, the, the black art of ampelography. That's how it was done. And I used to play around with this book. And then, you know, Doheen was, was part of, you know, helped Topless Creek in their original plantings and stuff in regards to the nursery and and his his daughter deborah and uh it's a crazy crazy world well because you were saying in ampelography you could have uh, the same thing growing in two different spots it and the leaves look exactly like it because this this book was based on how the plants grew at mount paylar which is basically the equivalent well at a hot much higher level of uc davis in france and they you know, they based it on what their visual attributes were at that location. Now, you can take some grapes. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, I've seen this happen so many times. And where we talked very briefly about Grover Doe, which is basically an obscure, rare grapes now in France that made it here to California and was called many different names, Trousseau, there is a Trousseau grapevine, but it wasn't Trousseau. There is a, a Cabernet Pfeffer. Pfeffer means pepper in German. And then there's William Pfeffer, who is the plant breeder in, in Los Gatos. It's, it just can get really, really confusing. But till we were able to basically get enough of a database of the genetics of the grapevines that, you know, under our belt, create a, if you will, a database then we could start putting things together. And that's what I really, you know, if I had it to do all over again as a kid, I'd go into that or I, I would have been a doctor. I don't know. And it, <laughs> it was like, I mean, under these ages, I felt like I under, uh, you know, I, I shot low on my life experiences by not. Why did you, why do you feel that? Oh, I just feel that. Like you didn't live up to your potential? Well, no, just because I see there's a lot more need for virologists and geneticists. Yeah. Well, I actually want to talk to you about Wild Horse uh-huh. and the acquisition, because this is an aspect of this game, uh, and I don't mean to diminish it by calling uh-huh. it a game, but, you know, the wine game, that has fascinated me. And that is, I've uh, talked to, like, Bob Lindquist, who's uh, right. incredible to talk to, and, and you look at what happened with Coupe and how something can go like, what, 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 and then pff, rugs out from under you. Gary Eberly, thank God. Gary Eberly, he told his story on this podcast, <laughs> and thank goodness he was given his managing control back and, and got that back. Uh, that was essential to him. Um, but the idea of acquisition is so interesting. Were you happy with the Wild Horse acquisition? Well, yeah, and Wild wh- Horse is the unwanted redheaded stepchild of the wine industry. I mean, right now, I mean, that poor brand, I sold to Jim Beam 
at that time, it was a Jim Beam was setting up a wine division, which was Peak Wines International. And this is what when about ish. This is uh, I was first approached if I wanted to sell in 2001, and I said, well, you know, I'd consider it. I was pretty wiped out by 9/11, and um, and you know just you know I you know you know I'll cons- I'd consider it to the right party. Yeah, and so then. Jim Beam is basically a very small percentage of the portfolio of Future Brands. Future Brands is the parent company. In the sale, I was dealing with Future Brands. Those guys were ruthless, but you always knew where you sit. Very professional. I shouldn't say ruthless, but they were, you know, they're hardball. And we had very good communication on what we we're trying to do. And, and it was, you know, you, you always kind of knew where the other party was. And I was considering it because... Were you equipped for this, for these kind of like big market, you know, corporate dudes that were looking? Did you feel well, like... I brought in consultants. Sure, okay. And, and I, I had I had probably one of the best winery attorneys in the business, uh, Jim Niven, as my, basically as my attorney in the deal. It took a good while to, to, to hash it out. Am I happy how it all ended up? No, not really. Because the problem that we had is that they had created a wine division that was called Geyser Peak. And their first acquisition was of the Geyser Peak Winery up in Sonoma. But I basically, the way I set it up was that we, you know, we were pretty much selling the brand, selling the property, and then we make the acquisition, we come to Peak Wines, and they, it was like they were adopting a baby and they didn't know what to do with the baby. And part of my motivation was, is that Wilson Daniels was going through a lot of, who was my national marketing company that I was out of contract with. They were going to be acquired and I didn't know by who, but I knew that they were going to sell their business, ended up being to the Underwood family. But that was after, you know, after the dust settled in Underwoods who owned Young's Markets and uh, major distributor here in California, and actually, Dunder, you know, Vern Underwood is a very fair person, and I have no beast of the Underwood family, but it just, it was one of those things where I didn't know who was going to be on first, I'm out of contract, I had a lot of debt, and we were profitable, but I still had a lot of debt, and I wanted to get, yeah, I wanted to get that debt put behind me, and that's the was the primary motivation for me getting out of the business. Yeah, and I would have played on, but they but they were just kind of goofballs. Yeah. to deal with. And um, Stephen Brower, who's who was who I had to report to, he and I did not get along. And sometimes after that acquisition, I've talked to some of the you know we mentioned uh, uh, Jackson family wines a little earlier. I don't know if it's off the air or on the air, but um, talked to some of those folks. And you have you know like Adam Lee, who's done great. You know with this Sidori brand. Here's a guy who didn't have any you know estate vineyards, but these. Mm-hmm fantastic relationships and made a fantastic brand and now acquired by the Jackson family and now he is you know only risen up in that structure to represent you know I think all of Pinot Noir now and you know mm-hmm. his brands are flourishing and there and he's got his own side stuff so he can kind of you know be tinker with his his I mean, greatness on the side but there's can... some people that they, they feel oh man I sold out or I'll oh, feel like I don't like I don't I, I just got this icky feeling now even though I'm well, still well, see, part of it the problem that I had is I made that sale and Jim Beam had, you know, I could see the writing on the wall. I, I agreed to stay on for six months. And I could see the writing on the wall that there's no way I'm going to stay here. And it wasn't necessarily my intention to leave, but I had the option to leave at six months. They wanted me for six months. And it was like, guys, okay, what are we going to do? Let's, let's make a phone call, a joint phone call to all of our distributors and tell them what's going down. And they... It was like I couldn't get them to do it. And I'm going, well, I don't know what you guys are going to do. I'm not, I'm not driving this bus. I'll let people know what's happened. But I, I'm not going to paint a rosy picture because you can't even tell me what you want to do. You know, I had some wholesalers that were really performing better in, in markets that they didn't have that were performing. And so it left, that led to chaos. And then, okay, dig this. Okay, I had an employee murdered off of the property in basically in that October of after the acquisition. And it, uh, she was basically, uh, had nothing to do with the winery, anything else, but we just didn't know, did not know what had happened to her. And she, she was last seen at the winery. My morale at the company 
was like tanked. Tanked. Damn. They, they were just. Did they ever find stunned. out who did it? Yes. They, all the all all of that was settled. Yeah, but, but, but damn, it was it was you know totally unrelated to the winery, but it just created this unknown. And this I'm funk, like, I, yeah. I'm saying, guys, we gotta. I need. I need to get psychological counseling here. We can't. You know, this is this is bad. Yeah. And I had, if you could dig this, I had a $500, I could write, buy anything I want that was $500 or less, but then I had to do like a three-step three thing, this is why I want to do this. Yeah. And I'm just going, fuck this, yeah. I'll do it. And, and uh, you know, it just was, it really, that really chafed my heart. Yeah. And so then I was like, okay, I'm, there's no way I'm doing this. So you finally walk away. Was that, a, was that so tough though? No, no. What, what this <laughs> gets back. Stick around, stick gets around, Adam. Oh okay. my God. Oh my God. Remember a little event in 2003 in Paso Robles? I do. It was the big December 23rd earthquake. Correct. And we had 4,000 barrels come down. I wow. had uh, Claudia Dunlap. My, did you, did my you guys get it the master. worst out of anybody really? We couldn't say anything. They wanted us to zip our lips and not say a word. And I'm like, holy shit, the world just fell in. And we, I had 4,000 barrels come down. And it was, you know, what a lot of people don't realize, and even for the fatalities in Paso, it wasn't the San Simeon fault that caused all the damage. The damage was caused by the Rinconada uh, fault that runs right down the river. Do you think all of those, I mean, it was crazy. That was the craziest, one of the craziest earthquakes I've ever been. I mean, been in some earthquakes. Me too. I lived in Southern California my whole life. I I was here for the 03. Yeah. Yeah, Or or, uh, 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 Whittier. Right. 87. Right. In October. Yeah. No, uh, Northridge, 94. Right. But I mean, this one to me, I mean, things, I lived in Paso downtown, things falling off all the shell. It was, it was a gnarly earthquake. I get chills just talking about it. Oh, I, I basically... I felt it, and I was just like, what the fuck? And I go, this is an earthquake. I got from my office on the second floor to outside in three seconds. Yeah, lightning. And and, um, and then I'm looking at it, and it's coming in waves, and it looks like there's like a... I never used mechanical harvesters, but I had mechanical... It looked like a mechanical harvester shaping shaping the vines, and I was seeing waves coming off through... Across the vineyard, onto the compacted base onto the sidewalk and that was the freakiest scene waves in concrete and really oh it was crazy and it was almost perfect north to south and it was just mind-boggling and scared the shit out of everybody yeah we always you know we had you know the great late Scott Welcher, who's my vineyard manager, we'd always worked on safety protocols and stuff. Okay, we have an emergency. He was a great man. I liked him a lot. Gather by the big oak tree and regroup and do a a call off on everybody and make sure everybody's there. We get there. We're doing a call out. Where's Claudia? Poor Claudia's in the barrel room doing, uh, moving some barrels around. She's smart enough to stay on the forklift because but the cage. she had barrels fall down all around her. Basically, one came in sideways, cracked her ribs, and she's she's in a building that's dark. And what didn't fall down looked freaking, you know, it was so cattywampus. We were like, "It's gonna fall." This is this is this is crazy. Ten. So then Scott and I went through the backside of the of the of the winery, and we we could hear, you know, we we're calling for her, calling for her, and we could, and she she pushed the forklift horn and we knew that she was in there and so you know we we're kind of going through this and just like holy shit we got to get claudia so we get claudia we bring her out to the back of the back of we finally got to her got her out and you know she was in a lot of pain we were like just freaking out another level yeah and so then it's you know i call my supervisor up in geyserville he's not answering so i call um i you know and i'm not supposed to do this but fuck this is an emergency call call to the guys at at um future brands yeah said we got we just got hit by a six plus earthquake yeah and we're this is a freaking caddy wampus yeah Uh, i was able to talk to a guy that 
had been to the winery, understood what was going on, and he was like, okay, I want you to get everybody out. I don't want you going into any buildings. Meanwhile, we lost power. Okay, there's a river of wine flowing down out of the our big uh, cement barrel building. And then the next call I get is my contractor who built that building. He goes, are you guys okay? You know, what happened? And, 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 you know, he's over in Bakersfield and he was like, God, I'm so glad you guys serve, you know, nobody got killed. I'm going, well, it was, it was freaky. And, and, and man, this thing's powerful now. Somebody had to die somewhere. And, you know, we were still trying to figure it out. Okay. We had to keep a code of silence. We couldn't say anything to the media, do anything. I've got some pictures that I'm going to release someday. I want, I was going to wait to the 20th anniversary. Fucking, it was so crazy. I had to get a hazmat crew down, you know, cause we were in two barrel racks and we stacked things up well, but we, you know, we had no, you know, earthquake Ret- prevention. Retrofitting. Yeah, 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 sure. I mean, if you see on my, the barrels I had at, at Kenneth Volk, everything was ratcheted down. with their thing. Right. Yeah. You're like, I've been here, done that. Right. Oh, it was fucking, it was fucking chaos. Wow. I'd love and, to see some and, of those pictures. I, and I, I thought that, I mean, to me, it's like, okay, I did the right thing. Yeah. Because I, you know, they took like a $6 million write down and I, I didn't have an earthquake insurance i never ha- i mean i i had a rainy day fund yeah you know but that we self-funded and uh scared the fucking bejesus out of me and so river of wine river of wine basically we have these channel drains through the buildings where you could rinse barrels or hose water into yeah those things would go and then go into a concrete vault from the concrete vault they would then be pumped up to our gray water system up on the upper parcel and um but we lost power to the vault so those things filled up and so it's coming out of banhole and then going over following the the contour of the vineyard and it went over i had all these um arizona cypresses that i had planted along that side of the vineyard most of them died but the crazy from from the amount of wine they got and then but the craziest thing you could scratch the wood on the ones that survived and it smelled like red wine no way it was crazy are you like literally seeing wine down the center of rose i'm seeing fucking wine going up well because everything's sloping to these encatchment basins and then from out of these you know i think they're 1500 gallon vaults we basically had a screen pump in them and then that pump would take water and then go up to my gray water we had a really good gray water recycling so i took water back from all operations in the winery and i'd use it for irrigation on the vineyard and uh it was um but that was just you know devastating and uh but i could that's when i realized that i mean that's when i said i'm out of here you ever thought about writing a book yeah you gonna i hope to I think you need to. <laughs> this, is, this is all too good. This is too no, good. But, but then, you know, you go. You, I think you're going into acquisitions and all that. I mean, look at look at the Niven family. Look at you're right. Look at, look, you know, look at that. You look at look at Calera and Josh was a friend of mine for years. And, yeah. And you know, he was he was very fortunate to have Duckhorn buy them. And then you you know you have then you know look at Letitia, and look at I mean it happens. I want to read you. So Matt Trevison was one of uh-huh. our best podcasts. He was, and here's another guy who really, you know, he was so he candid with us. Your, oh, he's a sweet guy. Yeah, he was so candid with us from the stuff with um, you, and then uh, working at Justin, and then Justin Smith, and and then Lene Coloto. And he uh, he texted me as I I texted him first and was like, you know, I'm kind of a. Uh, I'm really excited to talk to Ken Volk, and he just texted me a lot of random things, so I kind of want to just spitball you. Uh, go big or go home. <laughs> I think that term actually came from Carl Wicca. Oh, Carl Wicca from uh, Ed Turley. Yeah, I think Car- Carl was the one who said that. Yeah. I, or he's the one that, that really hammered is Carl Is Carl old uh, Wild Horse alumni, too? too? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah. God, did everyone and, work and, for and, you or what? And then and his wife Heidi did, too. Everyone worked for you, it seems like. You know, I had a lot of great employees. I had a lot of kind of... Terry stuff, Colton? Stuff to, Terry Colton. You know, Terry, you know, went to Willamette Vineyards, went to Calera, went, you know, John Priest. 
you know, John John went the fiddlestick vineyard was was owned fifty fifty purchase you know ownership between Meridian and Kathy Joseph, and then when um, they were you know as Meridian was going through their or I should say Behringer was going through their vacillations, John ended up uh, making the wines for that program. Then the opportunity came in house when uh, Tony was retiring from Etude, and they bumped. John had the opportunity to apply for that position and got it. John's a sweet guy and an excellent winemaker. All right. Trevi continues on. Yeah. Planting a tomato garden the size of Texas. Drink, yeah. Drinking wine out of Portuguese decanters that you hold at full arm's length above your head to drink from. You know, Scott Welcher had this friend who, like, had a, a Basque restaurant. And... I forget the actual details, but somehow we got this crate of those decanters and, and uh, you know, the ones that you hold, I, there's a name for them and I can't think of it, but basically you, in, you know, in Portugal, you wouldn't have glasses. Instead of having glassware, you'd have this in, in you know, no lipping, you, yeah. you, you, you know, and just you, let it pour, pour yeah. it into your mouth. I think about half of them turned into bongs, but they were, <laughs> they, they, they were, they were, those things were, those things were such a hit for a while. I mean, think we, I think we had like goldfish in them. We had shut up, really. <laughs> we had there were literally everything. Yeah, no, it was just it was fair. Okay, well, what can we do with these things? And uh, Matt Trevison's text says, "Kenny calling me up at night to ask where a barrel was so he could taste, and me describing a treasure hunt map." <laughs> That's. Probably not too far from the truth. Eight rows down, three stacks back, three barrels high. <laughs> now we'd have, uh, God. No, the fun, I mean, we, we played hard. We worked hard. I mean, there was, I mean, I was very fortunate to have some really good people work me through the years. And, you know, and, and I really think I had a, a really good team. You know, it's really funny. It's like, I don't mind if somebody leaves me for more money, I'll be mad. But I, you know, I understand. I mean, there's only so much I can pay people. And, um, but, you know, some people, you know, when their opportunity was there and they could go, they could step up. I'm, I, you know, I, as long as they're moving up. They had to fly, you had yeah. to let them fly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, you know, and I can't say there's too many people that I had that still, you know, can't call up and talk to and stuff. And, you know, it's fine. You, you can kind of do things on the fly when you're little, but you reach a certain point, you really got to, you know, cross your T's and do things correctly. I want to tell you this last part of this text from Matt Trevison. <laughs> he says, tell Ken, thank you for letting me start Lene Coletto here <laughs> from the dork on fork, a.k.a. Red Press Boy. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, no, no, Matt was, that was um, a character. And then basically I let them make wine there and you know they that was huge people and i think you know you could see the passion in both him and justin i mean yeah. they both matt trevison and justin smith really they had a fire and, mm-hmm. and, and it was legit and you could see it and i'm i'm so happy for for their successes isn't that cool to see oh absolutely yeah one yeah. thing i was so interested in um in our off-the-air conversation as we're pouring some of these reds now was just how many misidentified varieties they are and how things are misidentified so much. In fact, I don't even know if you remember this, but one time you came up to my table at the Cork Dorks at World of Pinot Noir. Uh-huh. And you had mentioned that you had heard some shows and heard some people who will constantly misidentify things. And I was very nervous that you came up to me because I was like, oh my gosh, first, Kenneth Volk listens to my show. Like I was really like kind of starstruck. I was really like, wow, this is incredible. But I learned at that moment and then it kind of got, you know, um, affirmed as I learned more about you that... Uh, variety specificity is so important to you. I, I, well, gosh, that's a big can of worms. But basically, yeah, no, the, the, it goes. It goes back to just we used to work with a system of science. I mean, science is always evolving, and you know, the best science that was available in you know the 1900s was ampelography. And then as soon as you start doing paternity tests by by DNA analysis, then you can really get down to brass tacks. And you know. I mean, hats off to Carol Meredith. I mean, look at look at the history of Zinfandel. I mean, some obscure grape in you know Dalmatian coast called Truga Grab. Who would have thought? You know, and you know the mother vine of of Zinfandel. And 
I just found that I t- I'm kind of a, a little bit of a science geek. When you think about your legacy mm-hmm. and you think of all these people, all these paths that you've crossed and uh, the incubator that you've been to so many folks, your love of these really hard to pronounce in very different varieties. What is it the legacy that you really would hope that you've done so much in this wine industry that you would love to see kind of happen? Well, we didn't begin to get into talking about Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and of which I'm an alum. And uh, I was in my own way. I think I did as much as anyone can to create the wine and vit program there. Cause I was pushing since I used to make all the Cal Poly wines from, I believe 1988 through 2001. And um, I thought I had Baker sold on it. I mean, I, you know, I, the politics of Cal Poly are just pathetic and we needed a wine and bit center there in the eighties and it moves very slow. I think that, you know, I, I built the wine and the pilot winery in 2004 um, and it's bittersweet, but I think that if we could get, you know, so much of the energy of young people that are interested in wine, that, that was a good, that's a good rush to, to feel, pick up on those kids' energy. Was this fun? Oh, it was great. Yeah, and I'd love to continue it if, if you want to do that. And, uh, you know, I've, I'm, I'm here at your disposal. Thank you, young man. So give me that moonshine, woogie bow, we pass on round till the job is camped out in the trees. It will simplify good company. Many thanks for the time and conversation to Ken Volk, an absolute pioneer and visionary, and so happy we will have that conversation for the Where Wine Takes You archives and look forward to talking again. Man, that earthquake story, though, huh? Damn. Well, on to our Travel Paso Spotlight. So for our Travel Paso Spotlight today, I'm talking to someone who I just absolutely love. Her, the ladies of the general store, the business, the general store, they're on 12th Street across from the park. How many times have I said that, Julie? Oh my gosh, huh? Uh, Many times over the past eight years. Um, I love it. (laughs) It's so good to talk to you. Now, introducing you to the folks who listen to this podcast and maybe, you know, are coming to visit Paso. What is the general store all about? The general store was started to highlight things that we love about the Central Coast, and it was a way for us to bring local makers more easily to people who were looking for interesting locally made small maker goodies. And that's how it started. And now we really highlight small makers from our area and then from California, kind of all across the United States now. There's just such a wonderful and thriving community of makers. So we're really excited to be able to offer us as a place for people to come to find goodies like that. I mean, whether it's Paso Almond Brittle, which is legendary, to Pop Gold. I mean, you guys got snacks there. You guys are Queens, I mean, your book game is so strong. Love your book game. From little <laughs> knickknacks, I mean, drinking things, lotions, candles, all kinds. I mean, your African baskets. I mean, you have an array of things that, that just span so much. You know, we feel so strongly about creating a space where you can actually interact with things instead of always being online and in front of our computers to actually hold a book in your hand and look at it before you buy it to smell a candle in person, to talk to a live person, one of us, about like, how do you use this Paso herb seasoning? That's what we love to do. And um, we, we hope that we create an environment that makes it really fun to shop and very interactive. You got to check out generalstorepr.com for Paso Robles, generalstorepr.com. But the next time you're in Paso, you just have to pay them a visit. And once you go in there, I mean, who's ever there is going to give you a big smile. They're going to help you out. Now, I've one thing that I've always done on my radio show with you, especially at this time of year, it's almost like a parlor trick that you're you're so it's good at. It's a game. Are we going to do the game? It's a game. We're going to do the game. It is the holiday season, and it is uh, the gift-giving season, and you guys got tons of great gift ideas. Now, before I start quizzing you on the kind of person I want to buy for and your gift, talk okay. about some of the things that are hot this year. Well, I actually was going to direct our um, our gift game in one way, and that is that puzzles are huge. They really were starting to kind of hit their stride before COVID, and then people just were reminded how fun and offline um, an activity is. It's also something you can do with another person. So puzzles are huge, and we have 
so many from so many different people or companies, literally across the globe. We sourced from all over. So I want to see if I can't name a puzzle for the first two people on your list. Okay, first one is a boss. You're buying a present for a, a boss. boss. Okay, so if you're buying a present for a boss, I'm looking right now at our shelves and shelves of puzzles, and I would probably choose one from a company that we call, let's say your boss is me, Adam. (laughs) So I'm going to say they have these wonderful puzzles from a company called Eboo, and it's a woman-owned company. They celebrate a lot of women artists, and I would probably select one called Mother Earth, which is a beautiful depiction of a woman and nature. It's really fun and colorful and playful. All of theirs are. So that's what I would get. I would probably throw a little cocktail mixer in if I'm going to be your boss also from Yes Cocktail Mixer. So the cranberry spice is my favorite this time of year. What do you buy for the person who perceptually has everything already? Okay, that's tricky. We usually suggest something edible because then they can share it and it's not going to just like take up space on a countertop. So I would say along with that puzzle thing, let's pretend they're really into plants and I would get them a succulent, a tiny, it's a small but beautiful succulent puzzle. And I, I would put with it some of this beautiful mustard we have, creamy tarragon mustard that's kind of in the same color palette. Mm. And I'd probably throw in some Malden salt as well. Also, what you guys do so well is you can, you'll do the gift baskets and I can say, hey, I'm looking to Mm -hmm. spend like 50 bucks or, I mean, we just put a gift basket together for a lady I fancy's mom and you had that blanket in there, which is incredible. You had candles. I mean, you literally filled this African basket with the coolest stuff. Everybody, before we gave it to Biddy, was like so jealous of this basket. We were jealous of the basket because you guys actually were very generous and picked beautiful things. But I have to say, no matter what the budget is, it's literally one of our favorite things. Yesterday, I had a gentleman come in and he said, I'm doing a basket for my stepdad and I really want it to be special. And he collected all these great pickles and hot sauces and this really fun chocolate from Comparte. And this thing was overflowing and it must have weighed 40 pounds. But it wasn't super expensive, but it was very thoughtful. And I love that, you know, he's probably going to share some of those goodies with his stepdad, which I thought was really cool. All kinds of different provisions and things. You got to check out books, blankets, candles. I mean, it is such an array. You can't even like narrow these ladies down to what they got because they got a little bit of everything. And the way they showcase and show love to local purveyors as well as mm. just quality purveyors, is so special. Uh, it's Jolie Thank from the you, General Adam. Store. Oh, my gosh. You know I love you, Jolie. You and the ladies there. Yeah. I've just got it going on. 12th Street. Thank you. Across from the park. This is downtown Paso. You can't miss it. The General Store. Pay them a visit. You will not regret it. Get some holiday shopping done there, too. And let them know you heard <laughs> them on the Where Wine Takes You podcast. Jolie, you know you're going to be seeing me soon, and I'm going to be you're going to be my little consultant once again. <laughs> I love it, Adam. Happy holidays, hon. It's always wonderful to talk to you guys. Much love to Jolie, Aaron, and Jillian and their team at the General Store. Again, check them out downtown as well as generalstorepr.com. Well, I think we got one more episode left of 2021, and I can't wait to connect with you for that. Very excited. Where Wine Takes You is executive produced by Joel Peterson and Paso Wine. Associate producer, Jen Bravo. Where Wine Takes You is recorded, edited, and produced by yours truly. Original music from Moonshiner Collective. Next time you are cruising the Central Coast, you can tune me in on your radio. My morning show, weekday mornings up in Adam in the mornings on Coast 104.5, and the Wine Country Radio, the Cork Dorks, and more, the Crush 92.5. Thank you so much for being here. I'm your host, Adam Montiel. Now, the next time we connect will be just before Christmas. So best wishes to you this holiday season before that. Christmas parties, gift giving, it is the most wonderful time of the year. I hope you can lift your glass up, cheers someone special, and celebrate where wine takes you. And give me that passion, get bowing, pass on down till the job is Get out in the trees, it will simplify and work on. Give me that moonshine, get bowing, pass on down till the job is Get out in the trees, it will simplify and work on. Give me that moonshine, get bowing, pass on down till the job is out in the trees, we will simplify in good company. With that moonshine, we'll get by. We pass on round till the job is dry. Camped out in the trees, we will simplify in good company.